Hello, everyone. It's Frank McGuire. And Christina Dudema. And this is another episode of Meanwhile, back on the podcast. Coming up on today's show, we have a real special treat for you guys. Christina and I are sitting down with one of Marvel's most talented and metal comic book writers, the man who made Jane Foster worthy, killed the Watcher, and made Daredevil a god, Jason Aaron. This is a two-part interview. This is part one, and we leave no stone unturned as we discuss it all. You don't want to miss this. It's going to be one for the ages. Hit the music. Gathered together from across the many corners of super fandom, here in their poorly ventilated podcast studio are the most free-thinking and entertaining collection of know-it-all nerd podcasters ever assembled. Their mission, to push the dividing darkness that threatens the magical land of super fandom back onto its heels one episode at a time. Together... They fight for truth, objectivity, and nuance in the conversation and debate over fictional made-up shit. Like we mentioned at the top, we have a special guest in the pod with us, the man, the myth, the legend, Jason Aaron. Jason is without a doubt one of the most prolific comic book writers of the last 10 years or so. He's the writer, creator of Scalped, The Southern Bastards, The Goddamned, and was the lead writer for so many Marvel titles, but probably most recognized for his work on Thor Jason, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for thanks for having me on. No problem, man. No problem. I got to let the listeners out there know that this is a real pleasure and real honor for me. You know, before we started, we were talking, like I was sharing with you my experience reading your Thor run. And it's just, it's just something that's completely imprinted on me. There's a lot of things in that story I could identify with being almost kind of a similar history that you had being Southern Baptist up into the point, you know, it really didn't make sense for you anymore where you be, kind of became an atheist. And that's kind of where I'm at too. I grew up as an Irish Catholic. My half sister is actually a Catholic nun. And I kind of became disillusioned with religion and with the church and with faith kind of the same way And that's why this story kind of really resonated with me. And I love to see competent and talented writers who understand how important nuances play with ideas and themes like religion. So just an amazing, amazing story. And I'm just getting to the end of Jane Foster's run, and then I'm going into King Thor. And I can't wait to read War of the Realms because Daredevil is like one of my favorite characters of all time. So I kind of already have an idea as to what you did for Daredevil in that. So cool. Cool, thanks. Yeah, the Daredevil was one of the kind of most fun parts of that. I got to do a little Daredevil story with Andrea Sorrentino. So so when you get to the War of the Realm stuff, make sure you dig dig that up. It was in one of the tie-ins War Scrolls, I think. Okay, I definitely will. I definitely will check that out. And honestly, man, I'm kind of surprised that you're not on tap to write Daredevil right now. Because I think one of the superpowers that you have is really with the street level characters and giving them a lot of different layers to kind of to kind of play with. You obviously have a good grasp on the whole crime drama aspect. And I think that given time, I think you could come up with like a really cool adversary for Daredevil in that universe. Have you ever thought about working on the Daredevil book? Um, yeah, I have. You know, I mean, I. You know, I think right now Daredevil's in really good hands, right? I, I really love the, the what Chip Zdarsky has done on the book. I mean, I think it's been one of the best books at Marvel for the last few years. And I'm really excited about the stuff they've got coming up. I think they just teased some some of it this week. This big uh, Devil's Reign uh, event, I think is what it's called. Yeah. So that that's all really, really cool. But yeah, I mean, I've, you know, I've thought about it. I, I was actually... I was in talks to write Daredevil 
to follow up Ed Brubaker, you know, back in the day uh, on the book, but it didn't work out timing-wise. I don't remember exactly why, but I was just too busy, I think, in general. So I had to say no, which would have been fun to have done it back then. You know, that was following kind of, you know, in that great run of Daredevil stuff from Bendis to, to Ed. So I've thought about it some since then. Uh, and certainly, like I said, that War of the Realm story I did with Andrea was really, really fun. I think that was the first time I'd ever written kind of a solo Daredevil thing. I don't really think I'd written him much at all before, maybe popping up here and there. Um, so I liked writing him a lot. So would I want to someday? Sure, who knows? You know, I've kind of always said I don't walk around comics for the most part with a list of, like, characters. Like, oh, I love you know, Spider-Man, and I just really want to do Spider-Man, and here's my satchel full of Spider-Man ideas. I have characters I've been a fan of, you know, as a reader, and I have some that do have a very short list, like Conan was on that list of characters I always wanted to get my chance at. But for the most part, I kind of just go with what feels right in the moment, you know, and for whatever reason, at that moment in time when I was offered Daredevil, didn't work, didn't fit. So will that time come around again where I feel like, this is the right time. I really want to do a Daredevil story. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. We'll kind of just play it by ear. Very cool. And you touched on something that I actually wanted to talk to you about. The way you approach your projects or the way that you kind of, you know, look at how you're going to kind of navigate your career professionally is very interesting. You take a very pragmatic approach where I've heard other interviews where you've said this, where, like you said, you're not necessarily targeting a character or a franchise or anything. You're more or less looking for other creative teams that kind of share your sensibilities and kind of share your kind of outlook or your vision for the kind of story that you want to tell. You more or less look at the people who are already working on those titles so you can kind of find people that more or less align with you, right? Yeah, I I would say, I mean, I kind of, just sort of quickly figure that out through trial and error of trying to break into comics. And then my, my earliest days of my career getting off the ground is that I figured out that those, you know, the real life humans involved in the situations were more important than the, the fictional ones. Good point. Yeah. So I'd never wanted to put the characters in front of the situation. I mean, clearly you got to have an affinity for the character and you got to be able to come up with a story. But I just realized things are a lot simpler if I kind of work with the people who I, like you said, have similar sensibilities with. And some of that, you know, sometimes that means like looking at the books you like to read and saying, okay, this one editor seems to edit like 20 different books that I, that I enjoy. So chances are me and them probably have some stuff in common. So if I'm going to pitch something, I should probably try to pitch it to them. So, okay, what characters do they edit? So to, to look at it that way, as opposed to, again, saying, man, I just really want to write Nightwing, so I don't care what the situation is, who's editing Nightwing, who's going to draw it, whatever, I just want to do Nightwing. That kind of approach just didn't work for me. So I, I, like I said, just started to focus on the people. And then kind of once you get through the phase of breaking in, it's not really about like you're limited to just kind of working with, you know, whoever returns your phone calls or emails that it's more like kind of, what do you want to do? But even then it was still very much for me about what felt right in the moment. And Thor was a great example of that. And then I was, Thor was not a character I'd wanted to write for years. It's not a character I had a big knowledge of that I had read that much of that I had a big affinity for. But at that moment in time, it just clicked as the thing where I was like, yeah, I think 
I want to do that. I think I've got a story I can tell with that character. Very cool, man. And that's kind of it's kind of interesting. You know, the one character that you never thought about doing something for is the one where you're pretty much the most well known for, as far as in the Marvel the Marvel pantheon. Like that's the character that really kind of established you as this incredible force in the comic book writing world, which is interesting. You know, I guess it kind of commentates on not knowing exactly what's coming around the corner in our lives. It's just, we kind of go with the flow and see how things kind of play out, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, I think with everything you do in comics, there's always like a bit of alchemy involved, right? You kind of don't know how things are going to mix together. And sometimes you get the the right mix of everything. Sometimes parts of it break down for whatever reason. Thor is a good example of everything kind of came together in the right way. I think it was the right time. We got Essa Ribic right out of the gate, so the right artist. And then as things went along, you know, they they happened in, in a good way. We shifted to the Jane Foster story and how that played out. So again, it's hard to kind of always get that right mix. I think sometimes you get there and sometimes you don't. I think for me coming into Thor, it was also the right time for me career-wise. And that, you know, I hadn't just broke in. I hadn't just gotten to Marvel. I'd been there for a few years. I'd worked on Wolverine for like, you know, six, seven years by that point. I'd been around the block. I'd been to retreats for a long time. I kind of knew everybody. And I felt enough confidence kind of in my place there that when I started Thor, I could say, okay, I'm going to have a long run. I'm going to tell a long story. I'm going to put down tracks that are going to take me a long time to pay off. And I'm going to do this with the confidence because I'm, I'm just going to hold on to it until they take it away from me, right? Like, and just feel like I'll be able to do that. And I did, you know, I, I had opportunities along the way to leave Thor and said, no, nope, you know, I'm going to be here until I'm done. So I, I wouldn't have felt that confidence, I think, if I'd gotten that gig, you know, even a, a year or two earlier. And so it was just kind of the right, the right moment to do something like that for me. Can you mention any of the books that came beckoning while you were writing on Thor? Yeah, I mean, there was definitely different Avengers books that came up along the way. Yeah, that, that's mainly what comes to mind. Okay, cool, cool. You know, like I said in my email, we did a ton of research getting prepared for this interview. I saw a lot of your interviews and I wanted to make sure that we tried to kind of find some areas to talk where maybe some fans haven't heard these stories or these your responses to certain things. And what kind of where I wanted to start was like, other than comic books and stuff, was there any other motivation in your life that made you want to decide to be a writer? Was there anything else? Like what, what do you mean? I've heard you say that you had a support around you as far as your teachers and everything, encouraging you to write, which is awesome. But like, was there, you know, were you inspired by films as well and novels and books? And I know, I know your cousin, for a lot of people who don't know, your cousin was Gustav Hasford, who was the author of The Short Timers, which is the book that was basically the basis for Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. One of my favorite films of all time, for sure. So was there anything else in comic books that kind of influenced that career path for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was an all-around general nerd about a lot of different things, right? Like, I, which I think I still am. I'm, I'm kind of into a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So I discovered comics really early, and I've kind of always been into comics. And I did say really young that I wanted to write comics, you know, once I kind of developed a, an interest in writing. I, I started out liking to draw. And I think I was pretty good when I was a little kid, but then I you know, sort of maxed out 
So for the longest time, I could still draw like pretty good fourth grader, but I've definitely regressed since then. <laughs> Pro- probably, but my mom, you know, would like keep all the stuff I drew. So she's probably got some of them. I did that typical, you know, dumb thing that I wish I hadn't where at one point I wrote and drew a bunch of my own comics, just, you know, like on notebook paper stapled together. But I kind of, my friend and I, you know, we made up what, I don't remember what it was called, but sort of our own comic company and we each had different titles. And then at some point, you know, years went by and I looked at them and was embarrassed by them as an older (laughs) teen and then threw them away. Now I'm like, you know, shit, I wish I had kept those. Yeah, dude, that could be like an NFT, man. You could be uh, you could be making some serious <laughs> bank off that right now. Oh, I'm, I'm still, sure, I'd still be horrified to show them to anybody, but I would just like <laughs> to have them. So yeah, word of warning, don't ever throw away stuff like that, that you, your feelings about them will change, I promise you. Like someday you'll wish you had those back. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. It's funny that you bring up wanting to draw comics because that's kind of where I got into it too. So I started reading X-Men and Spider-Man probably in like grade four, grade five. My immediate instinct was to start drawing comics. And I did not have the talent. I did not have the muscle memory. I did not have any of those inherent skills to draw. I was just, I was just bad at drawing, just horrible. But I eventually found my artistic bent, which was being behind cameras and being in front of microphones and you know, writing myself as well. <laughs> But yeah, I had this great delusion that I was going to be a comic book writer. And honestly, I'd have to, like, full disclosure, I probably traced most of the stuff that I thought I drew. (laughs) So, yeah. I feel like that's how everybody starts out, right? Like, I did the same thing. I can, there's some of the, you know, I've still got all the same comics I bought off the spinner rack back in the day. And there's some of them I can look at the covers and, like, still see the outline from where I'd, you know, traced the cover of, like, grew number one or whatever I was <laughs> I was trying to trace but yeah I, you know I, the I was the same way probably everybody who wants to get into comics as a kid you start out wanting to draw right nobody starts out like I'm gonna sit at a typewriter and write the stories we all want to draw the thing but yeah not all of us have that ability but yeah like you said my cousin Gus was a big influence on me even though he wasn't a guy who I grew up around. Um, he lived always here or there, very far away from where I was at, but he came to visit a few times and I got to be around him and just kind of listen in awe of, you know, shit, this is a guy who like makes his living as a writer. I thought it was so magical. And, you know, he, he died in 93. So kind of before I was really old enough to talk to, have like any serious discussions with him about wanting to write. But he still very much helped me break into comics, even though he'd been dead for years. And that uh, in the years after he died, I started researching his life and doing a lot of stuff online, putting together a website about him. And through that, I kind of came across some of his old friends, some of his old uh, Vietnam um, vet combat correspondents, and reached out to some of them. And then next thing you know, I'm going to some of their reunions and getting to hang out with those guys, sit in a room and listen to their stories. And, you know, one of them is, is Dale Dye, who has for decades been kind of the preeminent um, military technical advisor in Hollywood. You know, the guy, Tom Hanks, through boot camp, you know, for Saving Private Ryan. Like, Holy shit. Okay. 
so kind of through that, like through hanging out with those guys and researching so much about, about Gus, you know, I, I came up with an idea for a Vietnam War comic, which is what turned into The Other Side, which is, you know, my first the full 22-page comic script I ever wrote was The Other Side, number one, which I, I worked on for probably months, like the hardest I've ever worked on a single script in my life was that. So even though I'd, you know, I'd already won this Marvel Comics Talent Search contest, which was kind of my first break, really the other side, number one, was my second one, where I kind of broke in again at Vertigo. And that, that book was dedicated to Gus and to, to the Snuffies, his group of Marine combat correspondents. And again, to, like while I was working on that book, to be able to email Dale Dye, you know, a guy, again, a guy who gets paid thousands of dollars to answer questions for Steven Spielberg. And I could email him and say, hey, Dale, like, you know, could you explain how does this work to me? That was invaluable. And again, some of the bits in the book are literally stories I heard from those guys when I was getting to hang out with them. So that book was really special to me. And again, the lowest I think probably still now the lowest selling book I've ever done. And that was my first real book. And it was a war story, which generally don't sell. But again, the one I've worked the hardest on and in many ways, you know, the most important book I've ever done. And it led to the next thing, right? And the next thing led to the next thing. Now, 16 years later, you know, here I am. Well, the other side is definitely on my G. Sinaran reading list because one of the genres of film I'm actually really fascinated with is anything having to do with Vietnam. It's such a polarizing moment in world history. Even the soldiers were conflicted about why they were there and what they were doing. And, and it's just, it's such an interesting character study. And there's so many interesting things that you can do with the people in those scenarios and in those moments. One of my favorite Vietnam films is Casualties of War with Michael J. Fox. And what that character goes through in that film, it's incredible. And the way that he's opposited by Sean Penn and what, you know, what he stands for and where he's at mentally. Do you have a favorite Vietnam film, Jason? Or would you say it's Full Metal Jacket? Or I mean, probably, because I certainly have a great affinity for it, even though, I mean, the, the first chunk of Full Metal Jacket, like the boot camp stuff, is pretty much straight out of Gus's book. I mean, Arlie Ermey came in and added a lot more colorful insults to his character, but the meat of those scenes and the dialogue is was all written by Gus. The rest of it, you know, diverges quite a bit from Gus's book. So I, I encourage anybody who who has seen the movie, who hasn't read the book, to to track it down. Unfortunately, um, Gus's books are out of print, which is a that's a whole other story or discussion to have, but you know they you can track them down, used copies, um, the short timers, which is what Full Metal Jacket was based on, and then Gus also wrote a sequel to that called The Phantom Blooper, which is about um, Private Joker getting taken as a POW and experiencing life in a, a Viet Cong village, um, so getting a very different kind of look at the war. Oh wow! And then ultimately coming back, coming back home. So I I greatly recommend it to anyone. I think it's in many ways a better, more personal book than The Short Timers. That's a really, really good read. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm kind of fascinated by Vietnam War films too. And just in general, I'm kind of fascinated by the way things get interpreted and reinterpreted over the course of years. And with Vietnam in particular, you can kind of see, you know, in in the 70s, you didn't have many films that wanted to 
directly address uh, Vietnam, right? Like you had the deer hunter was probably the the biggest one, which is also kind of helps perpetuate that myth of you know the the psycho vet. But I, there's some really interesting like Vietnam era movies from the 70s that have nothing to do with the Vietnam War that you can still tell are still like made in the immediate shadow of Vietnam, which I think are interesting. And then, of course, in the 80s, you get, you know, the explosion of a Vietnam War film. So, I don't know. I think I'm fascinated by that in general, which probably makes sense given, like, what I do for a living is look at characters that are decades old and figure out, like, you know, how do we reinterpret these in a way that is interesting and in a way that's different from how they've been reinterpreted a hundred times in the previous decades. Very cool. Sorry, that's a long meandering answer to your question about my favorite Vietnam War film. No, it's great because like when I read that, I was just I was just blown away. I was fascinated by that whole connection that you have, especially with something done by Kubrick. Like Kubrick is without a doubt one of my favorite directors of all time. I don't know if you're a fan of his, but I found a book that his driver did about his life, like his personal assistant driver. If you're a Kubrick fan, you haven't read this book or heard this book, you gotta, you gotta check it out. It's insanely detailed. It's so good. I I have not. That sounds like a privacy violation. <laughs> <laughs> no, like he was a very close, intimate friend to the family. And I think he got Kubrick's kids to sign off on it once he passed away. And it's a very intimate portrait of, of a very complex and interesting man yeah i'm a huge kubrick fan i think you know i look at him in similar light to how i look at grant morrison in terms of comics and that i one of the things i respect most about um kubrick is his movies are so wildly different right like i mean what he didn't do that many it's a short list but each one is so incredibly different from the next which is one of the things I've always appreciated about Grant is that Grant has done so many different kinds of books. It's hard to pin one down and say this is like a typical Grant Morrison comic. With with Kubrick, it's the same thing. I don't know what you would say is like the quintessential Kubrick film. I think every Kubrick fan would have their their own answer to that, with and all of them equally valid. Yeah, I think that's the goal of his work. He's always left it up to the interpretation of the audience and his fans. Like, what does this mean for you? It's usually a very individualistic experience. I always come out of his movies with more questions than answers. <laughs> sure. And I think that any good artist, that's the goal. You know, I think that's the goal is, is to have your audience asking more questions than leaving with answers at the end of the day. Yeah, there's a couple Kubrick quotes I think about really quite often. One is not a direct quote, but from the when he was doing publicity, Full Metal Jacket, and doing interviews about the movie. I mean, he pretty much said, I hate doing this. I hate when people ask you, like, what is the movie about? Sum up the movie for us. He does. He gives this really eloquent summary of what Full Metal Jacket is, but at the same time saying, I don't want to do this. Like, this, I'm not in the business of doing this. I'm in the business of making the thing. And you go see it and you sum it up for yourself. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Um, so I think about that a lot. And then uh, I think from when he was making Full Metal Jacket, there's a quote where he said that real is good, but interesting is better. He was never looking for real moments. That's why they talk about, you know, he would do 80, 90 takes of the same scene. Because he wanted to push past 
what people thought that scene should be, what those words should mean to go somewhere unexpected. So I got to actually got to talk to Matthew Modine at one point a little bit and ask him about some of those scenes. Like he had said before that that scene just in Full Metal Jacket where he and Cowboy are just mopping the floor when he says that Leonard talks to his rifle where they're just mopping the floor, talking to each other. They had shot that scene so many times to the point where you don't even know what words you're saying anymore, right? Like, and Kubrick would never say, well, that was great, but how about you try it this way? He would just say, do it again, which sounds maddening. And I'm sure it was incredibly difficult and frustrating to work with him. Um, but I think that's such an interesting a- approach. And he kind of didn't, he did, couldn't tell you what, he wanted you to do because he didn't know until you did it. So I think his approach is really, really interesting. Yeah. You know, recently people have been revisiting what happened to, I can't remember the name of the actress, but the one that played uh, the wife in The Shining. Apparently there was times where Kubrick had her doing 300 takes. Yeah. Shelly Duvall. Shelly Duvall. That's it. Yeah. Shelly Duvall. Yes. Well, yeah. I think she did did not have a pleasant experience working with him from what I remember, just kind of everything he put her through. So I think with a lot of kind of, the guy was definitely a genius, right? Like I think Kubrick was a genius, like a lot of geniuses. He was a difficult guy, I'm sure. I mean, I just, this week I've been listening to this new podcast, Who Was Prince, which is really, really good. If you're at all a Prince fan, I highly recommend it. It's, I mean, it's very, very insightful, also heartbreaking and tragic, and part of what they talk about is this guy was so amazing. This guy was also incredibly difficult and frustrating in so many ways, right? I can see kind of smaller versions of that just in the artistic circles I've traveled in. So when you when you add so much more fame and, and money and responsibility and everything, I'm, I just think when you have guys who kind of reach that level of genius, like Kubrick, like Prince, you have guys who maybe struggle to function and just typical human society right like just don't work well dealing with other humans so i always feel like a lot of my heroes like like both of those guys who who i'm such incredible fans of it maybe would not have been a good situation to have met one of them right at some point like that that may be a very difficult not pleasant experience for you to to hang out with those guys like maybe it's best to to admire them from afar. Yeah, no, I think you hit the nail on the head. The greatest artists of our time are usually very tortured, very complex, and aren't exactly a perfect fit into the mold of society. You know, we all revere the work of Van Gogh, but that dude had a screw loose. Like, <laughs> Right. Yeah, maybe not the best, you know, guy to go have a beer with at the <laughs> pub. This is why I know I'm not a genius, because I am thoroughly fucking delightful to <laughs> hang out with. So clearly I can't, I can't be a genius. Actually, that's one notion I wanted to raise with you. Every interview that I've seen of you and all the research I've done, especially your beard missives, the newsletter you put out, I get the feeling like you would just be an awesome guy just to sit down and have a cold one with. Like literally like any topic would be on the table and it would just be like a roaring, laughing, good time. And those are the type of people I like to be around. So. Well, thanks. I, roaring, laughing, good time might be an over. Oh, okay. I mean, I appreciate that you have that notion, but I, I'm quiet. I'm generally quiet. I think I can seem standoffish. I can seem brooding and intimidating at times. 
but I mean, I don't feel like I am, you know, a group dinner. I'm not going to be the loud guy at the table. I'm, you know, I'm not that kind of gregarious, in no way gregarious. But if you want to go out and have a beer and talk about wrestling or (laughs) college football or Godzilla movies. Nice. Then yes, I'm I'm your guy. You're a big kaiju guy, eh? I wouldn't say I'm a huge kaiju guy, but I do like in particular like um Godzilla. And I I mean I I I say I'm not a kaiju guy. I do have Mothra and Gamera and a lot of other kaiju movies. So sure, I'm a kaiju guy. Cool. Who's your favorite wrestler? Uh like all time or yeah. yeah. You have to say Bret Hart because you're talking to Canadians right now. So Oh yeah, sure. Well yeah, well there's so many. There's so many great Canadian wrestlers i wasn't as a big of wrestling fan for most of my life kind of was as a kid back in the heyday of you know the wwf rock and wrestling connection so back then i i loved jimmy superfly stuck up oh he's great i remember superfly yeah he was awesome it's a little you know he's not who i would name now because maybe murdered his girlfriend at one point in real life oh shit he's become a little more complicated figure for real, I didn't know that. If you've ever watched Dark Side of the Ring, I recommend it. it's really, really a good show. It's got a lot of the darker stories from wrestling history. But within the last like seven, eight years, I've become a huge wrestling fan and started watching it with my kid. And at some point, I realized like the kid's not in there watching it with me anymore, but I'm still watching <laughs> it. Um, so these days, I'm a huge AEW fan. If you're not watched AEW, it's a newer company that just started like two years ago their shows come come on wednesday and friday nights on tnt and uh cm punk who's a who you know is one of the biggest stars of wrestling of the last decade who also huge comic book nerd who left wrestling seven years ago just came back a couple weeks ago and he actually has his first match with aew uh this sunday nice yeah my brother's really into aew he watches that really is he yeah. Huh. That's cool. It's really, really good. I, I became fascinated with wrestling at first, just from a storytelling standpoint of like the first pay-per-view my son and I watched together. It was actually CM Punk's last pay-per-view, the Royal Rumble from seven years ago. Which again, my son, like he'd just gotten into wrestling. He started watching old Undertaker matches. And at some point I was like, you know, there's new wrestling we could watch together. And he's like, there is. So he started watching it. He was big into it okay like okay well there's a pay-per-view coming up let's get it and watch it together we do it it's first one it's generally regarded as one of their worst pay-per-views ever that royal rumble that year is pretty reviled by wrestling fans for how (laughs) terrible it was and again so bad that cm punk was like well fuck it i i quit for seven years (laughs) so it's not a great start for us but the the I don't remember what my point was with that. <laughs> oh, but you, I you were talking about the story. Yeah, it became like so everybody hated it right away. Hated kind of the booking decisions of that pay per view, which comes on Saturday or Sunday. I don't remember which night. So then Monday night, you know, you get Raw, which is their regular weekly show, which is a live show. So the fact that they were able to kind of address that, address the criticism like right away on the show from a storytelling standpoint. I thought was really fascinating to like be able to, you know, read Twitter, re- address that and roll with it and move forward. I thought was really interesting. Like I hadn't really seen 
something like that from a storytelling standpoint. You know, I love live sports, but you don't, you see commentators address that, but not in a storytelling way. So that's kind of what first reeled me in, um, other than watching guys do crazy flips and shit, which I also enjoy, but. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Speaking of crazy flips, my favorites were always the most athletic guys. So Rey Mysterio and the Hardys, those were like, those are like my go-tos. And then obviously when it came to just pure presence was definitely the undertaker, like for sure was just the presence and uh, the mystique and uh, the mystery around that character. It was just really, really cool to watch. But my heyday for wrestling was probably in my late my, yeah, like around 19 to like 22, but like after a certain time, I just, I just kind of abandoned it. And I just, I don't know, it just kind of felt one dimensional at a certain point. I was like, okay, this isn't fun anymore. I got to stop watching this. And then UFC jumped up pretty quick because they were doing pay-per-views on the tail end of WWE pay-per-views. And we would sit at the bar and we watch the UFC thing and we were like, oh, okay. So this is, this is real stuff. And it was funny because Ken Shamrock had just, like had just started doing wrestling and doing UFC at the same time. So it was kind of interesting to see him fight on in both spaces. So, well, you know, I think there's a lot of wrestling comic similarity, right? So many people like you, like you're saying who, yeah, I was big into wrestling, you know, for a while and then fell out of it. Comics is so often, you know, the, the same way, like, well, yeah, I loved comics. And then I went to college and there wasn't a comic book store and I stopped buying them. And, and then you, you have the other people who are just like me as a comic fan where I've had a pull list, you know, every year since I was 15. That's awesome. One place or another. I feel like your comics aren't really written for children. Uh, most of the, you know, I started with Goddamned and then worked my way through a lot of the Thor stuff. And there's a lot of like swearing and violence and gore <laughs> and sacrilege, you name it. It's everything. <laughs> Oh, so sorry, you said you feel like they're not written for children. Was that what you said? I feel like they're not for children. I don't think I would let my uh, <laughs> child read a Jason Aaron uh, story. <laughs> yes, yeah, certainly those that you mentioned. But again, I'd like to feel like I've done a lot of different kinds of books over the course of my career. So I look at like Wolverine and the X-Men as something that's very different tone-wise from any of the, the books you just you just mentioned. So. Like, I don't know what age kid you're talking about. I, I don't personally have a kid, but I was just saying hypothetically. <laughs> sure. Hypothetical kid. You could <laughs> let them read Wolverine the X-Men, I think, and it wouldn't <laughs> scar them too horribly. Because, um, I mean, you know, like we we're talking about with Kubrick and Grant Morrison, I've tried. I think for me, as a consumer of entertainment, I'm interested in a lot of different kinds of stuff. And I've always tried to do that in, in books I write. So I would like to think that there's something I've written that would be okay for a kid to read there was one that i was looking at that seemed like maybe it was more for a youth or a child audience can't remember the name of it well yeah these days i'm uh sea of stars is an image book i've been doing yeah something like that it had like a purple cover yeah that is much more kid appropriate yes that's the one i was looking at yeah. that looked cool one of the things i was always so fascinated about in your interviews jason is you have spinner racks in your house like you actually have spinner racks. And I, I feel like it's um like you almost have a direct connection to that moment in your childhood when you first discovered comics. And apparently that's not the only one you have in your house, right? Yeah, we I've got a, a two spinner rack household. That's really awesome. I've got, there's one sitting in my office that's uh, filled with books I wrote. And then there's one in 
the basement in my bedroom that's filled with comics I bought off the spinner rack when I was a kid. Can people actually buy those or is this something that's been afforded to you as as a Marvel exclusive writer? They just like, here, Jason, take a couple spinner racks. I wish. Like, I should have that put in my contract. Put it in your rider, dude. Put it in your rider. Like a new spinner rack every every year. The one I've got is like an old vintage one just that I bought from a local retailer. And then the nicer one, the newer one I've got was a Kickstarter a few years ago that uh, Jim Demonakis did. And they're really, really nice. So they're, they're So they're brand new, but they're very much based on like the classic old school Hey Kids comics sort of spinner rack. So when you were young, beyond your love for comics, and obviously you had a deep appreciation for Alabama football, I know that. <laughs> Who were you in high school? Like, what was your place in like the social hierarchy? I grew up in the in a small town in the South. It's not like I went to a very big school. It wasn't really big enough to have too much of a hierarchy that everybody kind of knew everybody. But I mean, I was always the comic nerd. There was always, it was like me and one other guy, you know, who became my best friend, who were the comic guys in school. And I was the, you know, quiet guy who got good grades, who had a, a sweet mullet. Um, a who, mullet, nice. <laughs> you know, was big into hair metal and who liked to write, you know, anything in school that could involve me writing, I was down for it. So I was, you know, always working on the annual staff and the school paper. I actually won a scholarship for sports journalism my senior year for the searing expose I wrote on the fact that the girls' basketball team did not have cheerleaders who would come to their games. Only the boys' basketball team did. <laughs> So I wrote an editorial about this. Policy changed. That's awesome, dude. I love that. That is amazing. And won the Alf Van Hoos Memorial Scholarship from the Birmingham News for sports journalism. Wow. So unfortunately, I feel like that was probably the last piece of sports journalism I ever wrote and maybe ever will write. It was when I was 18, but I was happy to have some of my tuition paid for by sports journalism scholarship. That's pretty cool, dude. That's pretty cool. So did the girls' basketball team get guys as cheerleaders or did they get girls as cheerleaders? Well, I, no, I think we only had the girl cheerleaders. I don't believe we had any guy cheerleaders. So yeah, it was the same cheerleaders. They just like, what, can we have the same cheerleaders they get at the other games? Gotcha. Yeah, that's so nice. It like adds to the atmosphere and the spirit of the game and everything. Exactly. Well, I think that's going to be end of part one of our interview with Jason Aaron. Please come back for part two. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to Jason Aaron for joining us. Be sure to check out all his current and upcoming projects. Heroes Were Born is available now. And keep an eye out in December for Avengers Forever. If you hadn't had the pleasure of listening to our interview with AC Bradley, head writer and executive producer of What If, we encourage you to check that out. AC dropped some gems on us during our chat that every What If fan is going to want to hear. And I'm happy to announce that we will be doing another big giveaway real soon. So be sure to keep an eye out for that. And if you are on TikTok, make sure you follow us. We just recently launched our page there and we have some great content. So check it out and show your support. To be continued, I'm Frank McGuire. And Christina Dudema. Peace.